And we're back. I'm Gervier Bra. I'm here with Jamalkar Sandu, and we are screen off script. This week, we're getting into the holiday classic, Catch Me If You Can, and reflecting on all the major movie and TV news of the week. Folks, it's showtime. Frank Abagnale Jr. had a life any man would envy. I'm a pilot. I'm a doctor. I'm getting back into law. The only problem was... Special Agent Henry, FBI. None of it was true. Your son is fudging checks. Just tell me how much yours and I'll pay you back. $1.3 million. Leonardo DiCaprio. I'd like to take you out for a steak dinner. <laughs> Tom Hanks. I love my job. In a film by Steven Spielberg. Hey! Catch Me If You Can. Rated PG-13. In our first segment, like I said, we're talking about Catch Me If You Can. And we're going to be talking about Hawkeye and everything else. We got timestamps in the description. And don't forget to subscribe. So the first thing we'll be talking about is the old school classic, Catch Me If You Can. Just a little bit of context, obviously, it is the movie with Tom Hanks, Leonardo DiCaprio, directed by uh, Steven Spielberg. This is a movie that I feel like flies under the radar and simultaneously is the kind of movie you could watch at any point at all the time and over and over again. What's your relationship with this movie? Well, well first of all, I think it's wild to refer to a movie from 2002 as an old school movie. Like, every time I think, I personally think of an old school movie, I kind of think maybe 80s, 70s, maybe creeping into the 90s. And in fact, when I'm watching this movie, it doesn't feel like it's almost 20 years old. I feel like I watched this movie like maybe 10 years ago. The fact that this movie dropped back in 2002, great memories. It's like one of those movies, and we've spoken about this recently, where I remember vividly exactly where I was, the, the exact cinema, the movie theater that I watched it in. I remember it was a real bad snowstorm in London. We don't really get snow in London or in the UK like we do here in Canada. But my goodness, I had a banger of an old car. I just about made it to the movie theater in the first place. And then while me and my friend were watching the movie, which is like almost two and a half hours, we get out and like the car is just flooded with snow. I'm barely getting the engine started, barely getting home. So yeah, definitely remember watching it at the theatre, but yeah, just an absolute classic. It's, it's, it's one of those questions where I think you can easily throw this movie into your top 10 Spielberg movies. I think where you're going to have a challenge, and just because of how great Spielberg's catalogue is, is does it creep into his top 5? That's like, that's the debate, isn't it? It's like, can you squeeze Catch Me If You Can into a top 5 when you've got Jaws, Reds of the Lost Ark, Minority Report, and you've got... Saving Private Ryan and all these amazing movies. That's how good it is though. You can have a reasonable debate. It was catching Leonardo DiCaprio at a perfect time. Tom Hanks was absolutely still in his prime at his absolute peak. You've got an all-star cast. It's a fantastic story. It's a biopic. It's Spielberg quite literally at his absolute best. Yeah, there's really like, I think you covered a lot of it, but there's so many different ways we could hit this topic, right? Yeah. Like at the end of the day, like what is this movie? It's like, it's a chase movie. It's, like you said, a biopic, it's a period piece, like it's all these different things like all put together. And on top of that, it's just, there's so many dense layers to the story and the themes and so much that we're like gonna dive into. I'm so excited to talk about this movie. Uh, first thing I wanna quickly just address is that I feel like the thesis of this entire movie is purely given in that story that Christopher Walken's character always says. Two little mice fell in a bucket of cream. The first mouse quickly gave up and drowned. The second mouse wouldn't quit. He struggled so hard that eventually he turned that cream into butter and crawled out. That Gentlemen, is to me the thesis, like I said, of this entire story. 
because it can be interpreted so many different ways. In one way, it's the interpretation of an honest day's work and putting in that grind until you basically are able to make it out of your situation. And on the other side, it's the hustle, right? And it's the other side of what this movie kind of talks about is the idea of working really hard to escape the realities and the stuff that you have to deal with by any means yeah. to make sure you get out of that situation. Yeah, and there's that dichotomy between Abagnale and Hanratty because Hanratty is like a lifelong career government guy. Mm-hmm. He's the guy that's going to be there working on Christmas Day, whereas Abagnale, played by DiCaprio, is looking for the next scheme, the yeah. next con, uh, to make his next million or whatever he's doing, and he's constantly on the run. And it's a, it's a fantastic, almost like, to use the pun, a cat and mouse game. Uh, so it's a fantastic thesis that you laid out there. It, it's weird because like you can look at these both these characters and they're both aspirational in a way. Yeah. On one side you see Hanratty's character, the character played by Tom Hanks, and you're like, wow, that guy works really hard. That's very admirable. On the other side you see Leo's character and he's this con man. It just kind of shows you that like you can get anything done if you just have enough confidence. And just, just don't freak out and you can just be the man. It also just shows you know, what could have happened and what in fact did happen at a certain moment in human history. Yeah. Like with the amount of technology and data and security, uh, with the internet, everything that we have at our disposal and not even just us, but the government uh, and you know all of the various you know associations have at their disposal compared to you know what they had in the 50s and the 60s and 70s. You know, this is what could have been possible when so many systems were getting into place for the very first time. Things like bank checks and things like, you know, the 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 air transport industry you know and, and what it took to become a license uh, a licensed air pilot and what a license actually looked like yeah you know, literally a license is literally just a, a, a pen on a piece piece of paper laminated yeah and think about you and me could make a license that would work back in the 60s right now with the technology available to us at this day it's absolutely it's so interesting to see that that is like how much you got away with and it's purely because of how much confidence you could demonstrate and that's yeah. actually funny because the idea of a con man is a condensed version of confidence man that's where the etymology of that term comes from and when we look back like is this the best con man movie that's ever been made that's a fantastic question like from the top of my head i don't i don't even know what else would be in the running if i'm being honest with you i feel like this is like one of the best versions of what a con man story would be mostly because it's based on a real thing it's based on a real story and a real human person yeah yeah the cool thing is like this guy was basically like if you look at the character of frank william abagnale jr he's basically been bred to be a con man from when he was young and you don't realize it as it's going on but like from the get like his dad basically shows him how to grift when he's trying to get that suit and right after that you you see the same thing when his mom basically is giving a tour to that man in the apartment and she launches right into the lie right away he's been like conditioned to be like a pathological liar right from he when he was a kid and he saw the benefit of it he saw that it actually was helpful in actually getting what you want and that's basically what ushered him into the lifestyle that he ended up doing yeah and i think there's a there's a pivotal scene quite early on in the movie where he portray, he portrays like a french teacher and I don't know how you know real to life that whole scene kind of plays out, but in my mind I'm thinking the way it played out, because he's been playing this French teacher for a week at this school yeah. until he eventually gets caught, if that isn't a believable scene, if he wasn't able to pull it off and if he wasn't able to convince his fellow students that he was actually a teacher, would he have even had the confidence to go on to do bigger and better things down the road, right? I feel like that's a very early on but pivotal scene there. Quiet down, people! My name is Mr. Abignail. 
That's Abignail, not Abignali, not Abignali, but Abignail. Well, somebody please tell me where Absolutely. you left off. Absolutely, yeah, textbooks. that's 100% true. And it's like when like somebody is uh, is born with an innate ability. This guy has an innate ability to understand lying and understand how he can get like get that lie over on other people. And the best example, like what you said with uh, the classroom scene, but right after that, when he gets caught for that, he's sitting in that chair and tells that other girl how to get away with her doctor's note. Yep. Let's get into a uh, bunch of these uh, individual performances. I really want to talk about all of them as in-depth as we can. Let's get into Leonardo DiCaprio as Frank Abagnale Jr., First thing I'll say about this guy is he, if, if I could describe him in a sentence, is that he is a habitual line stepper. You know, because, you know, he would step across the line. Habitually, he's a habitual line stepper. It's funny because when I was doing a little bit of research on this, the, uh, the actual real Frank Jr. said that he didn't see Leonardo DiCaprio being able to pull off how suave he is. Right. Until he actually saw it on screen, which is kind of crazy to think, especially going back and thinking of Leo at that point being as like debonair as like young actor can possibly get. Yeah. I remember at this point in time there was a lot of pressure on Leo. There was a lot of like interest in terms of okay, so he's already had this humongous hit in Titanic that has just literally put him on the map. He's in every teenage girl's bedroom on a poster. He's, you know, part of the most successful you know, movie of all time, and then he takes a bit of a break. There were some movies that were in the can that were released after Titanic, like, you know, Man in the Iron Mask and also Celebrity. He took a break for a couple of years, comes back with The Beach, which was kind of like an okay movie, but I think it was a little bit underwhelming given, you know, everyone's hype surrounding Titanic. And then he takes a little bit more time off and then he comes back with just absolute bangers. You know, you've got Gangs of New York, Catch Me If You Can, The Aviator. Like, within a space of a couple of years, he's working with Martin Scorsese. He's working with Steven Spielberg. You know, he's starring opposite Tom Hanks. And, and I think this is the era where everyone realized, okay, he's, he's not going to be that one-hit wonder. Yeah. He's not going to be just known for being the Titanic guy, right? He's actually t- taken some time out, worked on his craft, even given time, uh, given people a little bit of time to miss him in a way and he's come back with some absolute great roles some great movies and Catch Me If You Can is such a pivotal movie during this little run where it completely elevates him and I think the reason for that is he has to play so many different characters within the movie itself and it just shows his range Uh, the way he basically plays like a man in all these different stages of his life I think it's the closest thing he's got in his his catalogue to like uh, Forrest Gump or like a Benjamin Button or something like right. that. Because he's going through all these eras and he's playing all these different kinds of characters. He plays like the innocence of being a young kid for like so, so well. And then later on when he's like what, in his like 20s or 30s or whatever, he's playing like a broken down version of himself. He's still relatively young, but you can see the growth in the character and everything mm. that he's gone to. Mm. As far as Leo goes, I don't think there's anybody who's navigated the waters of being massively successful as a young actor and then being taken as seriously as Leo has been in the past 20 years, like, especially the fact that this is 20 years, there's nobody that's touched that, like, the way he's managed Hollywood better than him. Listen, I know you said it in a little bit of jest there in terms of him being, like, one of the greatest actors of all time, because I agree, and and he absolutely is, but putting yourself in a situation where you're looking at him in 2002... Right, I think at that moment in time, the jury was still out. I think everyone just thought he was the heartthrob, got the lead role in Titanic, and you know he's this you know young, good-looking guy in Hollywood. But 
he kind of has proven over the last two decades he has taken on some really risky roles nothing was guaranteed but he's also made sure that he's got this diverse portfolio of, re of work and his resume right now is second to none and the fact that he's still only in his 50s means we're still going to get so much great stuff from him in the next what 10 15 20 years there's still plenty of room for him to grow as an actor but he had that foresight back then and the fact that he was a child actor and the fact that he had friends like Tobey Maguire that also had the same kind of reverence in terms of what could Tobey Maguire be but went down that franchise route, went down the Spider-Man route. Leo didn't do that. And we've talked about this before, that easily could have been Leo, right? Yeah. Because there was early, I, like there's early plans where Leo was going to be Spider-Man in James Cameron's version of that story. I think his career would have been so different. Obviously it would have been different. But I think we wouldn't have got the Leo we have now if that had happened. You could definitely make that argument. Um, on one side, you could say we would have got a totally different like Leo Dica Leonardo DiCaprio. On the other side, you could maybe give him the benefit of the doubt and say, you know what, even if he did take Spider-Man, and even if that was like this monumental success, would he have been able to do what perhaps Tobey Maguire hasn't done, right? Is still be able to take on other roles and take on projects. But at the same time, if he's doing Spider-Man, does Catch Me If You Can fall on his lap? Does The Aviator fall on his lap? Does Gangs of New York fall on his lap? Because this is the era when Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man movies were coming out. Exactly. Yeah. And who's to say, like, with him, if, if uh, let's say, James Cameron doesn't drop out of number two, right? How do we know James Cameron's going to stick around for number two? Or, like, he goes on and does something else completely, and then Leo's stuck with the Spider-Man character. Yeah. And he's got to work with director X, and that flops. Like, look what happened with Andrew Garfield. Yeah. Right now, we're talking about how tremendous he was in Tick, Tick, Boom, and he's, like, reclaiming his identity as a, as a serious actor and as a very talented actor. But back when Spider-Man 1 was happening, I felt like he was on top of the world. Spider-Man 2 comes out, and it was like, oh, well, we've seen his ceiling now. Let's see, uh, let's see who else is out there. Yeah. And it, it kind of hurts your perception. And on the same time, like, like you mentioned, while he's this young and he's taking roles like Catch Me If You Can... He's working opposite a guy like Tom Hanks. Gangs of New York, he's working opposite a guy like Daniel Day-Lewis. He's basically absorbing their powers and learning from them and adapting his career going forward because he's around these guys. Yeah. And at this point, we're lucky because, yes, like you said, he's in his 50s. We're about to see what he's about to do in his older state of his career. He's still a leading man now, but it's only a matter of time before he's like the elder statesman and like ushering in like whatever the new up-and-coming actors like Timothy Chalamet and Tom Holland are going to be. What's crazy about Leo is he still looks freaking great for 50. Yeah. You know, like, he, the, he could pass for 40 all day long, easy. That's the biggest benefit. Like, in this thing, he's, like, in his 20s, he's playing a 14-year-old. Right. Right? And, like, that's been his biggest benefit his entire career. He's always looked so much younger than he actually is. Yeah. And that's been paying off for so long. But it's only a matter of time before it catches up. Yeah, yeah. Right? Father Time is undefeated. Absolutely. Uh, but speaking of that, let's, let's talk about Tom Hanks mm. as Carl Hanratty. Again... Another all-time great actor, uh, who I think is, in some way, Tom Hanks has become underrated again. I think is that is that fair? To I say? kind of feel like there's a, there's a moment in every decade where Tom Hanks feels like he's underrated, and then he'll come back with a banger and just like slap everybody in the face with like an all-time great performance and a great movie, just to remind everyone like who the hell he actually is, right? I agree. He's been around for like what four decades now, and he's worked with the absolute best directors, Zemeckis, Spielberg, you name them. He's worked with them, and he's also someone that's had incredible range, has put himself at risk, has won Oscars. He's been there, done that, bought the T-shirt, and the fact that he was involved in a movie like this where 
you could kind of say they're both leading actors, but it's really this is really more Leo's role. This is this is the the, the story of Abagnale and Hanks is almost like the co-star. He's a supporting role, and, yeah. and the funny thing is, like looking into researching this movie, it was when Spielberg was initially looking to cast somebody, and we'll talk about other casting uh, options that they had before. We'll talk about that after. But when he was he was hesitant to ask Tom Hanks to do it because he didn't want to be like. Hey, do you want to play a supporting role? Right. But it wasn't until Tom Hanks was like, "No, a good role is a good role. I'll right. take it." Right. And, and and it's just like you said. But if you look at like what Tom Hanks has done back in what two thousand one, I think he was nominated for an Oscar, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until two thousand nineteen when he did uh, the Mister Rogers movie where he was nominated again. So almost twenty years of a difference of when he was nominated for Best Actor, which blows my mind. Obviously, like I'm not sure what should have been nominated in the middle of that time, but it, it's. Just the pedigree of how good Tom Hanks is. Tom Hanks in the 90s is arguably one of the best actors of all time, if you ask me. Yeah. His catalog was untouchable. Yeah. Big, Philadelphia, Forrest Gump, go on and on. He's just so incredible. In Same with Trevor Ryan. Yeah. Again with Spielberg. He's so goddamn good. And yeah. like I feel like people kind of look at Tom Hanks as almost like... Kind of like nowadays, like almost like the same thing as like Mr. Rogers, where he's like this everyday Mr. America kind of guy. Yeah. But like he's just so incredibly talented as an actor, and I don't think he gets enough credit these days. I feel like everyone kind of has always thought of Hanks as a Mr. Rogers in a, in a way because he's always been Mr. Nice Guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he's never been Mr. Controversial. He's like had this like long lasting marriage in Hollywood, you know, such a rarity in, in, in LA and in the movie business, and he's been very consistent. He's always been one of those in-demand actors that other people want to work with, whether you're a filmmaker, whether you're also a fellow actor. And the thing is, is I feel like Tom Hanks has got to a stage of his life where you know, he can obviously pick and choose what he wants to do, and I think there's obviously moments in every actor's career where there are going to be risks. Yeah. Okay, hey, I'm going to go work on this movie with Zemeckis where I'm going to be acting opposite a volleyball for like half an hour and I'm going to lose extreme amount of weight and then I'm going to put on extreme amount of weight. But that's going to give him an Oscar. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? So like Tom Hanks, yeah, I'm still interested even to this day in a Tom Hanks movie because I know it'll be something that's going to be serious it's going to be enjoyable it's going to be of a high caliber and more often than not Tom Hanks is usually involved in projects that's going to pick up awards whether it's for his own performance whether it's going to be for directing for screenwriting for cinematography something yeah Tom Hanks is an all-time goat it's funny because he didn't win the Oscar for best supporting actor for this particular movie it was actually Christopher Walken who played Frank Abagnale senior and that's another person I want to talk about because he, if you ask me, this is one of his best roles. And that's mm. saying a lot considering his pedigree. She's so stubborn. Your mother. Don't worry. I'm not going to let her go without a fight. I'm fighting for us. Dad. Since the day we met, Daddy, out of all those men, Remember that? Christopher Walken is absolutely incredible in this movie. Yeah. The scene for me that absolutely encapsulates that is a scene when they're at lunch and he's trying to give him that Cadillac. And he's telling him the story about how he met his wife and you can see how choked up he is. And he's, again, he's just incredible in this movie. It's just, it's crazy that Christopher Walken is such a specific person. And like the way he talks, his cadence, his tone and everything is so impressionable. Like everybody can have an impression of Christopher Walken. But for some reason, he falls into these roles and I buy him every single time. If you have like a weird voice or a weird mannerisms or something like that, it's, it's easy to like 
take that person and be like, okay, well, I mean, we're going to pigeonhole him as just this kind of actor. But it feels like Christopher Walken can do anything he wants, and he's just incredible for decades and decades. Yeah, I feel like Christopher Walken is one of those actors that obviously had, you know, his prime or heyday predominantly during the 60s, 70s, and, and most of the 80s. For me, like, I remember him coming onto the scene, you know, and, and like, maybe it had been a while since he was kind of involved in a major movie, but having a very small role in Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. it was just like, that blew me away. Yep. You know, things to do in Denver when you're dead. There was a run of movies in the 90s where he wasn't perhaps the lead role, or he wasn't even kind of like, you know, I'm surprised now that you remind me that he won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor because I feel like Tom Hanks had a lot more in this movie. He had a lot more scenes with Leo and things of that nature. But Christopher Walken during that time, you know, he's making a bit of a renaissance and making a bit of a comeback in the 90s. And all of a sudden he's once again an in-demand actor yeah. he, and he's involved in a project like this. And it's easy, I feel like, for some actors in Hollywood when they get to a certain stature, even like Tom Hanks to like accept a role where you're not the lead and accept the role where you're maybe playing a bit part in a movie that's going to be predominantly dominated by a young up-and-coming actor like DiCaprio. But credit to Walken, takes what he's given on the page, over-delivers in my opinion, and again puts on another member performance and like you said, won an Oscar for it. Not only that, but I feel like Walken and Hanks really are the blueprint right here in this movie to show how you gracefully age in Hollywood. Mm. And these are the kind of roles you should be taking it's just not only stay relevant, but to sh- like basically put over the new talent that's going to basically be guiding this industry into the future, and that's very important. Speaking of that, we also have like one of the early appearances is Amy Adams as the daughter of Martin Sheen, who's also tremendous in this movie. Yep, and uh, she's Brenda Strong. I think she's fantastic. She's so well cast. She plays this innocent character so so well, and she like demonstrates guilt so well. I, she's so in love with Leonardo DiCaprio's character. I, I can't rave more about how good Amy Adams is in this movie. Yeah, like we said at the beginning, all-star cast, right? And you've got veterans, you've got a massive movie star in DiCaprio, then you've got the up-and-comer in, in, in Amy Adams. It's mm-hmm. like, what more can you ask for? And, you know, we've obviously also got, you know, Martin Sheen, you know, who DiCaprio ends up working with a few times uh, during this run. He worked with him maybe a little bit more so uh, in The Departed. But the fact that Martin Sheen, again, another one, much like Walken, much like Hanks, maybe to a lesser extent, is taking on a much smaller role in this movie. But again, it's such an important role. And like having those scenes opposite DiCaprio where you feel like this guy knows exactly what's going on with Abagnale. Abagnale confesses everything. And he's almost like Abagnale during this movie has a father, but he also had other father figures. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, don't know how true to, to life that story is and how much of that was kind of, you know, written into the script purely for storytelling devices. But man, just an absolute all-star cast. You couldn't ask for a better cast in this movie. 100%. And there's also like other cameos, like Elizabeth Banks as the bank teller. She was fantastic. And I think one of the highlights as far as like smaller roles goes is Jennifer Garner as yes. the escort, right? Like in... She's, it's, it's almost like the opposite. Seeing a con man with another con, like woman, I guess, she's just fantastic. It's such a slick way to basically try to get your services purchased. You know right, what I mean? Right. Like, he buys a deck of cards at the hotel gift shop. You want to see a card trick? How much do these cards cost? 
55 cents, I think. And if they sold me downstairs at the hotel gift shop, how much would you pay? I'm, I'm sorry, how, how, much, how much would I pay for what? The entire night. How much would you pay me for the entire night? All right, and it's just like, it's so seductive, it's so well done, and he basically pays like $1,000. For one night and I quickly googled it $1,000 in 1964 is the equivalent to basically $9,000 today wow so imagine paying $9,000 for an escort that's crazy for one night which is absolutely insane not only that but then he screws her gives her that fake check of $1,400 she gives him $400 so in reality he basically made about almost $3,500 all in one night just because he's the superior con man in that situation. I think that scene is also very interesting because it kind of shows where Abagnale was. All of a sudden, he's gone from having nothing to having fast money. And you know what they say about fast money. It, it comes in and goes out very, very easily. Mm -hmm. And you want everything. You want the, the car, the suits. You're going to eat at the fancy restaurants. You're going to splash the cash like it's going out of business. And you know, given how much money he'd made by, what, 19 in Minica, over a million dollars, again, back then in the 60s, it just shows, you know, where his mindset was. And who wouldn't, like, I remember being, you know, a teenager and, you know, working for the very first time and finally getting that monthly paycheck coming in. And I'm trying to go to the, the stores and, and get the best clothes and this and that, let alone having all this money, cash in hand, yeah. ready to splash wherever you want. So I think, again, a good, an important scene just to show where Abagnale was at that moment in time. And again, to show that as far as con men go, don't even try me. Yeah. I'm going to best you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next, we have uh, Steven Spielberg, obviously as a director. This is a very pivotal movie, if you ask me. Like This is when he's already in like the zone of... I'm going. It felt like he was going for Oscars. You know what I mean? He's making the best and most artistic films that he can make because he's coming off so many box office successes. Like He wants to obviously make money off these movies, and that's why he's casting these massive actors. But he's taking these roles and these, these projects that are very weighty in terms of themes and like what they're actually trying to get across and we'll talk about that as well but just what did you like about Steven Spielberg's contribution to this movie? Well the signature of a Spielberg movie is evident in this movie it's all about father issues and Spielberg has that um, as a part of pretty much every single movie where you know a son or children or kids have some sort of issues with their parents most likely a father and that's true to life or what Spielberg kind of grew up with and he said this multiple times in multiple interviews um, but for me he's you know every once in a while he will take that list uh, that risk rather you know he'll have a box office hit, hit like Jurassic Park and then he'll do Schindler's List mm -hmm. right here we have a situation where you know he had already produced Saving Private Ryan which is like one of the all-time great movies one of the all-time great war movies yeah. and then he makes a movie like Catch Me If You Can right which is a very kind of like family friendly rewatchable it's a biopic yes there are serious natures to the story but it's almost like a bit of tongue-in-cheek it's a bit of fun you know Frank Abagnale didn't kill anybody you know he's just laundering and defrauding the, the 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 US government and the US federal bank and things of that nature so you can have a lot of fun with that sometimes I feel like Spielberg is like you know okay I'm gonna make this serious serious movie and then I'm gonna have a bit of fun with this and I feel yeah. like Catch Me If You Can is a movie where he's having some fun with it but 
when Spielberg and a director of his caliber is having fun, he's still delivering an absolute all-time classic, and that's what he's done here. You know, there, there is something like like almost like fantastical about this movie, like yeah. almost like magical. Like obviously, like Frank is like perpetuating these fantasies by like the way he's trying to portray all these different people, but the way they film it as well, like the lighting and the effects that they use. It's yeah. uh, I thought of this specifically because of like that trick that they do in the movie where Frank's running away and then all of a sudden. Tom Hanks' character standing in the hallway and there's just a dollar bill just kind of floats from under the table or under the uh, door and it just kind of flutters like this magical draft is basically going by. Yeah. And it just looks like a magic trick is happening. Yeah. And you see that more consistently throughout the movie. It's very subtle, but like the way it's filmed is almost like this fantasy movie yeah. in a certain, certain way. But also like another thing I love with Spielberg is the fact that he just keeps pushing himself. He doesn't quit. Like he keeps yeah. pushing himself artistically, taking on difficult projects. Like even today... His last project was Ready Player One, which is like one of the most highly acclaimed books that could have turned into a movie anyways. And yep. I still feel like that that could have been turned into like a series or like a franchise or something like that. But his next movie is West Side Story, which is arguably one of the greatest movies of all time. And it's one of the most winningest Academy Award winning movies of all time as well. How much more ambitious can he possibly be? Listen, like I said, he makes fun movies, but he makes rewatchable movies. Like, I think I've seen more Spielberg movies on repeat than perhaps any other filmmaker. I can't, you know, tell you how many times I've seen the entire Indiana Jones trilogy. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've seen Jurassic Park. Catch me if you can. I watch, I think, at least once a year, at worst, every two years. Yeah. And I know we're going to get into it a little bit later on, but I feel like it's a Christmas movie. I feel like if it's on, you know, even if you're 20, 30, 40 minutes into the movie on TV, you'll stick around because, you know, you're in for a fun time. Spielberg just has this way of, you know, creating magic on the on the big screen or on the small screen, whatever project he's into. And um, he has no sight of, like you know, slowing down. I feel like he's just constantly like making movies like every year. This is in the can. And like, literally, we're talking about West Side Story that's about to drop. And there's already a movie that he's working on that's going to be dropping Thanksgiving next year. That's how, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a workaholic, man. Not only that, dude, he's 60 years into making movies, right? He's 75 years old. He's 60 years into making movies. And he's obviously in the GOAT discussion, right? He's in that conversation. Like, obviously, I've, I've said this multiple times, but personally, I consider like Tarantino the GOAT. But Tarantino also has like this nearly flawless discography or filmography purely because he's got 10 movies, right? right. <laughs> That's it. 10 movies and there's basically no mistakes in there. But if you were to like have a different kind of conversation with Spielberg, let's just say you put Tarantino's 10 against Spielberg's top 10. I think they're right up against each other. And again, just if not more, obviously more impactful if you ask me with Spielberg because like Jaws is an all-time classic. Jurassic Park is an all-time classic. But then he's got Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan. He hits like all these different parts of what it is to be a director. And I, I would argue his top ten might be more substantial than any other director. They're obviously very different filmmakers as well. Spielberg has essentially made every kind of genre you can think of. Yeah. Tarantino writes all the movies that he's going to eventually make. So he, he the concept, the conception he has for his movies, he has, has in his brain from day one. Spielberg will usually get a script handed to him or a project and say, hey, do you want to develop this uh, Crichton novel on dinosaurs and we can like flesh it out? Yeah, give me a script in six months and I'll have a read and then maybe I'll jump on board as a director. But, um, but yeah, I think you can definitely make a top 10 versus top 10 have a, a reasonable debate. And whether you pick Tarantino, whether you pick Spielberg, whether you pick, I don't know, Scorsese or Cameron or whoever, 
you know, you, you can you, you can always have a, a reasonable debate. But yeah, I agree. I think Spielberg definitely in the goat conversation. He's definitely in my top five of my favorite directors and filmmakers of all time. And and yeah, like I said, when you see the rolling credits and you see a Steven Spielberg film quality, you know there's going to be a certain standard. And whether you are into the idea of the movie, the genre of the movie, whether it's about space and aliens or dinosaurs or World War One, World War Two, whatever the case may be, you know it's going to have a quality stamp of approval because it is a Steven Spielberg film. One day we're going to do a top 10 of just Spielberg movies yeah. and like battle off that yeah. because I think that in itself is as interesting of discography or filmography as you could possibly get. He's, okay. He's just as good as it gets. So quick, quick teaser, quick, sure. a very, very quick teaser for that right now. If you had to, is Catch Me If You Can making your top five Spielberg or not? Like I, I'm pretty confident in saying that it would make both of our top 10. That's not even up for debate. I think Catch Me If You Can makes the Spielberg top 10 very comfortably, but does it make the top five, yes or no? For me, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. That's not a debate for me because okay. I love this movie so much. Like you said, it's so rewatchable. I've seen yeah. it so many, so many times. I think maybe, I think, I think Catch Me If You Can is my most watched Spielberg movie. Really? Yeah. Okay. I think it is because I watched it, uh, like you said, I watch it basically every year. Sure. And if not every year, then every couple of years for sure. Right. And I don't know if I could say the same about basically any others, any other movie. Interesting. As much as, as this one. Interesting. Um, but yeah, let's get into the discussion of why we watch that every single year. This movie is a Christmas movie. Yes. Oh! Merry Christmas! How is it that we're always talking on Christmas? Well, every Christmas, I'm talking to you! Put this shirt on, Frank. You're under arrest. Hey, are you hungry? Do you want some beans? Call They got the best French beans. In the truest sense of a Christmas movie, this is it. What is Christmas if not a celebration of family, right? Obviously Christ, but you know. <laughs> if you're not into that, then it's really a celebration of like families and friends coming together and celebrating something together. Right. And that's what this is. For Frank Jr., Christmas represents family, right? Uh, I, I've thought about this so much. Like, There's so many scenes that really articulate why this is a Christmas movie. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Christmas is a theme and uh, an event that basically weaves this entire movie together. And it starts with the, the Christmas scene where he's with his parents and they're dancing and they're telling the story about how they met each other and how he wasn't going to leave France without making her his wife. Right. Right. And I enjoy like these old timey like romantic stories, but at the same time, that's the establishment of Christmas is family and family is what Frank's really looking for, right? Like when he sees his mother leaving, the writing's on the wall that like, you know, his life is about to change. He doesn't want to deal with these consequences. So screw it, I'm gonna bail too, because I don't want to upset this balance in my head of what family is. Instead of dealing with that actual consequence, he pretends like everything else is fine and I'm just gonna go and live this other life instead of that. Yeah, for me, I mean, A, is this a Christmas movie? Yes, why? For me, is this a Christmas movie? First of all, you just hit the nail on the head. There's tons of scenes that are tied into Christmas, that are set during Christmas. Mm -hmm. Number one for me, this movie was released during Christmas. It was yeah. released December of 2002. And not that that's like, you know, the number one thing of why it makes a Christmas movie, but hey, listen, it was released during Christmas. Like I said, I remember it being like, you know, a massive snowstorm in, in the UK and I know when it first dropped. You mentioned the fact that it's got so many scenes that are tied into Christmas, that obviously helps. 
it's even got little things like, for example, you know, the, the, the iconic song of Come Fly With Me by Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra is always played during Christmas. There are all little signatures and all little things, all the seeds uh, that make this a Christmas movie. But the mo most important one for me is the rewatchability. I feel like if there's a time of year that I'm going to throw on Catch Me If You Can, it's going to be during Christmas time. Yeah, 100%. And, and again, there's just this whole movie is glued together by the idea of Christmas. And again, with family, because that's what the metaphor that I think is tightly portrayed in this entire movie. Plus, there literally is an, uh, a moment, well, moments throughout the movie where Abagnale and Hanrahi have a conversation yeah. on Christmas Day. Every Christmas, he Every calls Christmas, him, And yeah. it's an important thing. It's the closest thing the other person has to family. Yeah. Right? And, like, that's why it hurts Abagnale Jr. so much when, when he says, you didn't have anybody else to call during Christmas. That's why you're calling me, right? And you can see how much family really means to him, like, when he's accepted by his soon-to-be in-laws during Christmas, and he's so happy to be singing along with them, yep. right? And, and then at that point, he goes and seeks his own dad, and that's when he has his own scene over there, like, and, and then he spills out his guts of, like, all the jewelry, all the furs, I'm going to get that all back, because he's still looking to fix his family, and, and then that's all, again, in that scene, it's all surrounded by Christmas. It's like he has an emotional trigger. Whenever Christmas comes around, I need to be around my family, and... I keep doing all this stuff, all these like swindling and con man stuff because I'm trying to repair the damage of what had happened yep. because I want this all back. I feel like for some reason Catch Me If You Can doesn't like make those it's a Christmas movie lists or like it never is in the conversation but I feel like we're going to change that. Oh, I feel yeah. like we need to insert it. I think Screen Off Script is now inserting Catch Me If You Can into the Christmas movie Hall of Fame. A hundred percent. It goes out of its way to make itself a Christmas movie. Again, when he goes back to Paris to catch him in the act, it's on Christmas again. Right. And it's just when he finds out his, his lost his dad through Hanratty and all this kind of stuff it's all through Christmas it's all weaved together beautifully together the last scene where he, he finds that his mom has finally moved on he's lost his dad he finds out his mom has moved on on Christmas Day is again representative of family and the fact that he's lost it all and that's why he finally basically gives himself over to living and like actual reality and being accountable to all the stuff that he did because he wants an actual family and he finds it through Hanratty and obviously that character isn't real, but that character is, is more like metaphorical of like him finding these new father figures and all that kind of stuff that he lost because he ran away. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful thing. I, I, again, Christmas songs. This is more of a Christmas movie, if you ask me, than Die Hard. Oh, I don't know about that. I Die mean... Hard is set during Christmas, and I will not argue that it's not a Christmas movie. This is more of a Christmas movie. Listen, if you're going to have an argument or a debate about Christmas movie list, like Die Hard is number one for me, no matter what happens. I don't care what other Christmas movie you want to put in there. I'm putting Die Hard as my number one Christmas movie of all time. It's never. Why is Die Hard more of a Christmas movie than this movie? Well, I'm not saying that it's not a Christmas movie. I'm not saying it's like less of a Christmas movie. I'm just saying for me personally, if I'm making my list of my favorite Christmas movie, Die Hard is number one. Home Alone's gonna make the top five for sure. And then I gotta ask, so are you saying that this is a that Die Hard's a better movie than this movie? For me it is, yeah. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Like, better performances? What are we It's talking? not about it's not about like the, the critical, you know, accolades of performances of things of that nature. For me, I just feel like Die Hard holds a much more special place in my heart as a Christmas movie and as a movie in general than Catch Me If You Can. I can see that. 
and I can see... again this is personal preference like for me I love I'm not trying to knock Kakmi if you can don't get me wrong I'm not trying to knock it at all I'm just saying if you're asking me personally hey Sandu what's your number one Christmas movie it's Die Hard do you prefer Die Hard to Kakmi if you can I absolutely do so do you uh, how about this separate let's not make it a Christmas movie okay what's a better movie Die Hard or Kakmi if you can just as a general movie? As a movie. As a general movie, Catch Me If You Can is a better movie, okay, okay. generally. But if you're saying, what's your Christmas movie? Like, if I'm going to make my Christmas Day movie marathon, right? Home Alone, mid-afternoon... Oh, we spoke about this last year. It's going to be just after, like, you know, I guess that mid-afternoon coffee, kind of leaning into uh, your evening as mm. the sun starts to stay and start to get dark outside. And then for me, Die Hard is post-dinner. You've had a few drinks. It's like 10, 11 o'clock. You're watching Die Hard. I don't know if Catch Me If You Can for me makes the Christmas Day movie list. Catch Me If You Can makes the list of at some point of a Christmas, I'll watch Catch Me If You Can. I feel like, because uh, I don't have that same routine. Sure. Right? Like, I'm not sitting there watching Die Hard every single year. Sure. And I am. See, that's the difference, maybe. Yeah, I'm definitely not doing that. Yeah. So, for me, this is, and, and I would argue just because it's so overtly surrounded by Christmas as sure. opposed to like Die Hard, which is like, taking place during Christmas, but it's yeah. not really about Christmas. This movie is about Christmas. Oh, listen, I can list you 20 movies that are about Christmas. Just because a movie is about Christmas doesn't necessarily make it into my number one like list of like, this is the quintessential movie that I have to watch on Christmas Day. I think if I'm dying on a hill, I'm dying on this is more of a Christmas movie than Die Hard. I'm going to die on the other hill. I'm <laughs> going to die on the Die Hard is the best Christmas movie of all time. Let's get into a few of the casting choices. The original choice for Carl Hanratty before Spielberg got Tom Hanks and asked him to do it was James Gandolfini. Right. The The reason why James Gandolfini couldn't do it is because uh, Leo was doing some reshoots for Gangs in New York, so they had to push this movie back. And James Gandolfini basically had to go back to Sopranos. Wow. That's why he got replaced with Tom Hanks. But could you imagine if this was a movie for James Gandolfini? I would have loved that personally. Man, I would love to live in a world where that became a reality. Uh, it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier on. Not so much about when actors are tied on to kind of like franchises uh, on the big screen, like, you know, trilogies and things of that nature. But on the flip side, if you're an actor where you are tied to a particular show like Gandolfini was with The Sopranos, mm -hmm. you know if you can't commit to a movie like this during a certain window of the year, you're out. Because the show that you're a part of has a very strict schedule. And the fact that the schedule is co conflicted where you know shooting got delayed and they had to go back to Hanks, that is bizarre to me. That's crazy. Again, would have loved to see what that performance would have looked like. I feel like as far as... like I'm a new Gandolfini fan, right? Like I just watched Sopranos relatively sure. recently. So... Looking back in history now and looking at this, I almost wish that he had movies like that. I would have been way more familiar with him much earlier had he been in big roles like that. Right. Right. And not to take any with anything away from Tom Hanks, he was obviously incredible in this movie. But to see somebody like that get a shot and be part of like a movie like this, I think it would have been really, really cool. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of, so they were actually trying to make this movie since the 80s. Mm. Originally, they were trying to get Dustin Hoffman as Frank Abagnale Jr., which shows how old this movie was originally. But uh, back when Spielberg finally came around and wanted to actually direct this movie, he actually wanted Johnny Depp to play Frank Abagnale Jr. I'm so happy that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. He would have looked much older, I, I can imagine, right? Like, I feel like by this point in like 2000, 2001, 2002, yeah. I, don't know if, uh, I don't know if Johnny Depp is the right guy in this kind of situation. Yeah, maybe he's a little bit too older. I think he's a bigger box office star at that point uh, as far as like carrying a movie. Not Titanic, but any other movie. I think Johnny Depp would have been a bigger deal at that point. But 
I think Leo was 100% the right choice. I don't know. This is still the depth before Pirates of the Caribbean really like took him to that next level in terms of being a block blockbuster guy. DiCaprio's coming off Titanic. He's coming off of Gangs of New York. I don't know. I mean, again, thank God it didn't happen. I'm kind of happy that they didn't go with Depp and they went with DiCaprio because I feel like that would have been a completely different performance. Then again, when you look at a performance like Donnie Brasco, you know Depp had the chops and he's always had the chops to do something like this. I don't. But think I'm just happy that they went to DiCaprio here. I don't think he's like less of a like a lesser actor. Yeah. By any means, I think I actually think Johnny Depp was like incredible during this time. I yeah. really do think. At one point, Johnny Depp was, like, one of the most talented actors in all of Hollywood. Yeah. And that's what's kind of lost these days because, you know, he has, like, this weird reputation now. But back in the day, at one point, he was one of the go-to and best actors. And if you knew that Johnny Depp was going to be in a movie, you had to go watch that. Mm. Not only was it a box office success, but it was almost like you were waiting for him to, like, be one of those guys where it's like, okay, cool, he's going to have an Oscar performance at some point. Yeah. It just didn't happen. I, I do feel like, yeah, he had that, but I feel like DiCaprio had that times 10 purely because of Titanic. And I feel like that post-Titanic like run stayed with him for quite a while, which is almost what allowed him to have a break, come back, and then go on this run with these kind of movies. Because I think people were like, all right, is he going to be the guy? We're going to watch because he's a Titanic guy, but we're still going to like try and give him the benefit of doubt to see if he's going to be a bona fide actor. And obviously... He proved to to be exactly who we thought he would be from uh, from a very early age. If this movie was made today, but set today as well, do you think it would work? No, <laughs> it can't. It, it can't be set today because it's not believable. The things that Frank Abagnale Jr., like I said earlier in the in the podcast today, was what he did worked for the time and the era that he grew up in. Right, I think watching something like that happen now is just not believable just because of the technology available because of the security and you know mobile phones and and cameras and thing and the internet things of that nature it just it just wouldn't work i think this old movie would if it was made today in the set today it would be a movie about cryptocurrency entirely <laughs> yeah. uh, how much fun would that be i'm gonna do a con on my laptop <laughs> <laughs> if you got all that money where would you run away to Oof. Probably Switzerland, right? Everybody always talks about having a Swiss bank account where it's like the most secure bank in the world and they don't really ask for any other like documentation from you know other jurisdictions and whatever your criminal past is. If you can get your... If you can physically get into the borders of Switzerland, yeah, I think you're good. I feel like I would... My, my thought process is always, why don't you get away from anywhere where people from where you are from yeah. would have an easy time to navigate themselves around? I would move to like Japan or Korea or something like right. that. Somewhere on that side of the world where anybody who walked in would have such a culture shock yeah. that they would have a hard time not only finding you, but finding themselves in that city. You know what's crazy? Like, even just thinking about this question, I don't think there's anywhere in the world you could feasibly even go to to hide from the government in 2021 i mean they located snowden in russia it's yeah. like it's like you are screwed like there is a digital signature that is going to be chasing you down and you're going to be leaving that breadcrumb trail behind no matter where you go doesn't matter which country you're in in this day and age you just cannot hide from anybody in the world 100 uh let's get into our categories best character what you got it's frank abagnale jr played by leonardo dicaprio and for me the reason why this character and Leo in this role is my favorite actor slash character is because the variety and the range of different personalities, like you mentioned before, a doctor, a lawyer, uh, a French high school teacher, like the list just goes on and on. And for Leo to do that 
at this stage of his career. It still holds up when you rewatch it all these years later. It's fun seeing him put in these kind of like dicey situations and he kind of just talks and acts his way out of them. Flawless. I think as far as Leo's catalog goes, there's so many highs that a movie like this kind of gets uh, lost in the shuffle. I think this is probably, if not his most, it's one of his most underrated roles that absolutely that exists, for sure. 100%. Yeah. Uh, what about best scene? What was your best character? Same thing. Same thing? Yeah, uh, of course. Cool. <laughs> um, all right, best scene. Oh, this is a tough one. I've got two, and I don't know which way I'm going to go ultimately, but number one, it's when Han Ra'i first captures Abagnale in the, the motel, and if you're like, oh, is the movie over? Has he caught him? No. And it's like Abagnale Jr. literally talks himself out of that situation. And it's hilarious because the, the, the scene right after is Abagnale explaining to his superiors, hey, I had him. I had him at gunpoint and I literally let him get away from me. Yeah. So that is like one of those moments where, you know, from that moment onwards, Han Wright, he was now like so focused. I'm going to get this guy. Yeah. Like he, he made, he embarrassed me. He made a fool of me. He he done what he's been doing to like banks and tellers. He done it to me. No, 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 no. I'm gonna get you back. So I thought that was a fantastic scene, and also one of the very rare scenes that Leo and Tom Hanks actually share together because yeah. they're constantly chasing one another and things of that nature. So that scene, but then also I think it's the scene that I personally have every once in a while probably uh, reiterated and almost uh, reenacted the most, and it's like, do you concur? Yeah. It is that iconic scene when he's having this situation where he's. Got to help with a was it a broken leg or I think it was a, a, a burnt a burnt leg a fractured tibia a, fra- a fractured tibia <laughs> uh, and he's being asked about his opinion in terms of whether they should go into surgery whether they shouldn't go into surgery so yeah the do you concur scene is another big one for those me. are great for me it was that scene in where they're in Hollywood California where he basically almost gets caught it's right. such a close call it's one of those like all-time great close call scenes 100% my favorite scene in the entire movie hands on your head Oh, that's the new IBM Selectric. Put your hands on your head. Print type in five seconds. Shut up! Pop out the ball. Put your hands on your head. Put your hands. You know he's got over two hundred checks here. Hands on your head. Drafting. He even has little payroll envelopes addressed to himself. Put it down. Drop it. Relax. You're late. All right. My name is Allen Barry Allen, United States Secret Service. Your boy just tried to jump out the window. My partner has him in custody. I don't know what you're talking. He doesn't panic. He lives the lie, and Hanratty can't help but start to panic because he's like coming off this boring desk job and he just wants to prove his value and he's always being discounted because he's like this boring disc, like desk jockey right. in the FBI yeah. and then this young kid just basically just sh- takes all of that and just shits all over him by like proving that listen on the field you can't hang with a bigger con man than me right right it's just it's the best the best portrayal of these incredible characters yeah uh what about star rating five being the best zero being the worst where does this movie end up 4.75 it's like so damn close to perfect for me it's still rewatchable i watch it at least once a year it's one of spielberg's best it's one of dicaprio's best you can make a case for this being in both of their top fives at the very least the floor is this is a top 10 from both spielberg and dicaprio I had to think about this and I'm like, all right, I think I'm going to go with 4.5 purely because like I absolutely love this movie. I almost, this movie actually made me think, okay, if this isn't a five, what the hell is a five, Mm. right? So I had to like, now I'm almost anticipating when I'm going to finally be able to give a movie a five star rating because I feel like we're holding it so 
like in such an esteem that we're not giving anything willy nilly a five star rating. Sure. So I'm, I, especially with this movie, if I'm not giving this movie five, I can't wait to see what we actually end up giving a five star rating. I kind of went through the same process, and I would have given this a five had I not thought to myself, are there other DiCaprio movies that I actually would give a five above? This movie, catch yes, there is. Are there other Spielberg movies that I think are better than Catch Me If You Can that would get a five? And yes, there is. And that was the 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 distinction. Because if, if they weren't, this is getting a five all day long. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely an interesting. It's definitely something to look forward to when yeah. we actually are able to give something a five star rating. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, that's everything for Catch Me If You Can. Again, one of my favorite movies to rewatch. One of my favorite movies during the holiday season, and absolutely a Christmas classic. Hawkeye and I are working on a case, uh, and we needed to use the bathroom. I uh, hate he did. So we were by the house and we dropped in. No big deal. Working on a How case terrific. together? Let's get into Hawkeye now. Again, we just got episode four. I think we're both on the same page on a lot of this thing, especially coming off last week where we finally caught up on the series. Mm. Uh, let's get into just this episode. What did you like about it? What didn't you like about it? I think there were some like really cool moments where yeah, Clint... And Kate are having moments where they're bonding. But for me, this episode is all about that cliffhanger. And I've spoken about this on last week's episode where I felt this show is more in the league of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And basically the final scene kind of confirms that for me where you get, you know, the new Black Widow. You know, you get Natasha's sister make an appearance here. She was obviously involved in a post-credit scene at the end of Falcon and Winter Soldier. She's obviously involved in a major way in the Black Widow movie and she's literally going to be the new Black Widow moving forward but for, for the time being she is chasing down Clint and she is chasing down Hawkeye where she's basically been told he's the reason that your sister died and so now we're starting to get a bit of a payoff of that situation so for me that final scene is honestly the most important scene from this movie and with only two episodes to go I'm curious to see kind of how they kind of flesh this out and pay it off moving forward yeah uh, obviously Yelena Belova has been hired by Valentina Allegra de Fontaine the most fun name to say in the history of the MCU <laughs> but uh, yeah she it, it's gonna be interesting to see how she kind of fits in the puzzle of all this because she is one of the th people that has made this more of an interesting show because now it feels like there's a little bit more as far as stakes go right I, I do love the chemistry as far as like Kate Bishop and Clayne Barton like they do work really well as an on-screen uh, duo they have great chemistry I also absolutely love that scene where she figures out that he's Ronan yeah right like and she basically has to come to like that realization that she views him as a hero but he himself views himself as a weapon right right and he himself doesn't buy into like the rah-rah of like he knows that it's not just, you know, I'm saving the world and all that kind of stuff. We're doing a lot of other stuff outside of that. He has to deal with the realities of all that and her perception, regardless of how she views him, he can't just keep living like a lie and like pretending that he's just perfect. Yeah. And I love that. That's like the most real part of the show and like that's the strength of the entire show. Yeah, and I still think the cool aspect for me is like the fact that it's set at Christmas it has started to snow here in Toronto. We are fully in uh, Christmas mode right now. And to see a weekly show constantly set in Christmas still has a uh, pretty big hook for me when, when watching it's Hawkeye. It's the biggest strength of the entire show. Yeah. Beyond like any story character stuff, that is the biggest strength of the entire show. It's also weird because the show doesn't take itself too seriously, I guess. Yeah. But at the same time, like, I don't take the show that seriously. So it's a bit of a catch-22 because moments like the montage of them putting up like Christmas... Uh, decorations and all that kind of stuff that stuff's fun I don't think that could exist in any other MCU show yeah. or movie right but at the same time 
it's also the reason I'm not that invested in the show as well. Yeah, and I think that's probably one of the uh, the critiques is, and you hit the nail on the head here, is that because it feels like the show isn't taking itself too seriously, isn't taking the villains that seriously, it's a bit of a ho-hum, we're about to go and break into this house. It's hard for you as a viewer to be that emotionally invested. And as a comparison, when we were watching Loki, yeah, there were moments where it was entertaining, where it was funny, there was elements of comedy, but when it got serious, you were like, yo, what's about to go down right yeah. now? And that's the major difference between Loki and a show like Hawkeye. Yeah, exactly, 100%. I think you nailed it right on the head. Uh, the like, At the end of the day, it's interesting to see like Clint kind of dealing with like everything he's dealing with, the guilt of like being the person that Natasha basically sacrificed herself yeah. for. Like yeah. he's still dealing with that trauma mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff, right? So that is very the most interesting part of the show, but at the same time I'm I'm still walking away every week thinking like that was okay. Right? Like I I'm not ever blown away by the show and I don't think I'm I, I do not expect to be. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I feel the same way. I'm kind of glad that there's just only two more episodes of Hawkeye. I'm just, I just want to get to the end and see what the ramifications are on the MCU moving forward from this show. And I almost feel like, uh, and I hope this is what Disney Plus and Marvel Studios end up doing with projects like this. Maybe we don't need six episodes. And I, I think we spoke about this a little we bit said last, this last week. week. We need, this could have been a Christmas special. This could and have been, I would have yeah. been so happy with it. Give me a two hour, like almost like a made for streaming service, like mini movie. Yeah. Or if you want to do an episodic situation, give me four episodes. It doesn't need to be six. Four, one month, four weeks, or even release them, you know, back to back episodes in over a two week period. Something a bit more shorter, a bit more condensed, whether it's a mini movie or a shorter length of episodes in the series. It doesn't need to be this long. This would have been like the kind of thing that Disney Plus could have experimented with just dropping the entire show all at once. Yeah. Even if it is six episodes. I agree. Binge it in one shit, in in one go. Yeah. 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 That that would have been good for me. Um, But at the same time, it feels like this is like a weird, like, transitionary phase of the MCU as well. Right? Like, they're introducing all these new characters and. I don't think all of them are going to stick. That's just kind of the reality of it, right? Like, who knows? I think Haley Stanfield is going to be somebody who probably can be part of the MCU going forward for a long time. I think yeah. she does. Like, as far as her performance goes, I think she's really strong. And I think she's going to grow on people as time goes on. Yeah. Everything else? Eh. Yeah, I agree. Um, even with the new Black Widow, like, you can... They, they are starting to kind of plant the seeds for, like, who are going to be the next wave of Avengers and they're picking actors that are playing these characters that are fairly young in their careers as opposed to hey we need someone um, that can play Tony Stark and Robert Downey Jr. is the perfect guy and they had like a good what decade long run I feel like with some of the actors they've got now they could easily do 15 years 20 years because they are so young not just both in real life but also in their acting careers where you can't be like oh you know what Hayley Stanfield is so iconic for seven eight different characters and all these different movies and projects whereas right now for me if you say what is Hayley Stanfield best known for I'm gonna say Kate Bishop like on Hawkeye you know what I mean yes she was in the Bumblebee Bumblebee movie uh, but for me in terms of what I've absorbed of her content I haven't really seen much before this to be honest with you pitch perfect yeah I haven't seen, I've watched it <laughs> I haven't watched it uh, yeah but you know let's see let's see where it would happen I feel like the MCU is in a kind of like an interesting place and yeah. we're gonna see kind of how they come out of this yeah every time I start a new scene I'm nervous and when that verges on panic I I get great ideas let's get into the news stories of the week 
Uh, Gentlemen, the first one, just to tie into what we were talking about before, they are doing the Steven Spielberg biopic, The Fablemans, Mm. which is set to release, like you said, in November 2022. The film is loosely based on his childhood, and it's going to be directed by Spielberg himself, and it's going to star Seth Rogen, Michelle Williams, and Paul Dano. Tremendous cast, tremendous director. So interesting that he's basically telling his own life story to a degree. Yeah, and like I said earlier on, you know, the, the one signature in the vast majority of Spielberg movies is just showcasing a conflict between children and their parents. So I definitely feel that you're going to get that uh, in, in big spoons uh, during this movie. If you've seen any Spielberg documentaries, you kind of know what his background and, and what his story is. But the fact that he's going to be the one behind the camera, it might be one of his most personal projects ever, period. Telling his own life story. And seeing Seth Rogen in a role like this, you can tell, like, obviously he's been trying to get into more serious roles. And he's been taking himself very seriously as an actor uh, going forward. But it's going to be interesting to see how he handles, like, a biopic like this, where he's mm. obviously going to be the lead of the film. Yeah. Next we have Dave Bautista. He's basically in talks to star in M. Night Shyamalan's new horror movie, Knock at the Cabin. Are you interested in that, Dave Bautista, M. Night Shyamalan? Do you think that's going to work? It's funny. I'm actually more interested in Dave Bautista and what he does more so than I am now of Shyamalan. I feel like his recent run of movies haven't really resonated with me or been well received. And on the flip side, Bautista is so eclectic with his choice and the kind of the roles he's taking on, where I'm like, what's what's this guy going to do next? So yeah. on on the one side, no, but on the other side, yes. Yeah, uh, it's also interesting that next we're getting into like some DC stuff, but uh, Colin Farrell is basically going to be doing the Penguin character, but he's, they're doing a spinoff series for the HBO Max, mm. and they're announcing that now before the movie even comes out, which is interesting. But at the same time. Timing of announcements is something that we talked about last week as well. I just don't like it when they do this. Mm. Why should I know that this guy either lives or is this going to be some sort of prequel? Like, I, I don't know. I don't like that. Let's just tell the story that you're telling first and then announce all the other projects after the fact. Yeah, I agree. Because, like, instantly, you know, like, watching the new Batman movie... Guess who survives? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's never good. On the flip side... It does perhaps indicate to me that with the Batman essentially being in the can, enough of the executives have probably watched the movie and watched Colin Farrell's performance um, as the Penguin that they feel strong enough about it where they're like, yo, we need to flesh out this character a little bit more. And the one other great um, thing coming out from this is something that you and me have spoken about rigorously in past episodes is I would rather, if they were going to flesh out universes, just work on the Batman universe. Because it's so you know, deep when it comes to characters, when it comes to villains, when it comes to stories. You don't need to jump into the Superman world or the Flash world or the Wonder Woman world. Batman in his own self-contained universe is already expansive enough where you can give me movies and, you know, streaming service, TV shows. Give me that all day long. Yeah. Next, Kerry Scogland, who obviously did the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, will now direct the Cleopatra biopic starring Gal Gadot. Patty Jenkins is basically just a producer now. So that's two projects that Patty Jenkins basically got booted off. The Rogue One, uh, or the Rogue Squadron project that was supposed to come out with Star Wars, and now this. I'm not surprised. Uh, I'm still feeling really bitter about that Wonder Woman 1984 movie. I felt like Patty Jenkins was in a situation where she was either going to level up or level down. And for me, she leveled down in a big way. And yo, to be removed from a Star Wars project, doesn't matter what it is, is crazy. And is very, uh, I guess telling in terms of how the studios feel about her capabilities as a filmmaker but the fact that you know 
given the fact that she has this relationship with Gal Gadot, and Gal Gadot has incredible power, incredible, um, I guess, um, position when it comes to the project that she's a part of, the fact that she clearly hasn't really said much about this and say, hey, you know what? Even though I've worked with this uh, female director a few times, I'm happy where she's just a producer now in this Cleopatra movie. I'd rather work under somebody else's vision and, and guidance. It's very telling in itself as well. It absolutely is very telling. But not only that, it's it just shows that what she did with Wonder Woman 1984 versus what happened with Falcon and Winter Soldier, regardless of like how we kind of felt about the show, like I think it was very well made. Mm. Right? It was a well-made series, and I think that's going to translate to a much better... I'm more excited about this Gal, this, uh, Gal Gadot Cleopatra movie now right. than it would have been had it been filmed by Patty Jenkins. I agree. I think it would have looked yeah. very different, and especially knowing what they did in Wonder Woman 1984, I was such a non-fan of that movie. I think yeah. we shit on it for about an hour, so if you ever want to check that out, go back in the archives if you'd like. <laughs> uh, let's go into some MCU-related news. First, uh, kind of related, Tom Holland basically confirmed that he's doing the Fright Astaire biopic. Uh, that's for Sony. So first off, I think what that shows is that Sony, is, last week they announced that they're doing all these other movies for Spider-Man, like continuing into the MCU going forward. And I think what they're doing is they'll probably try to position it that like, listen, just keep doing these Spider-Man movies. We'll let you make whatever movies you want on the side. Any movie you want, we'll, ca- like, we'll give you $100 million, do whatever you want, because we're going to make a billion dollars through these Spider-Man movies. So as long as you keep doing those, we're happy. And I feel like that's the position that Tom Holland's really put himself in. It's funny that on today's episode, we've spoken about DiCaprio and we also talked about Tobey Maguire a little bit. I almost feel like what Tom Holland is doing right now on this current run isn't so much DiCaprio, but it's not so much Tobey Maguire either. It's kind of a little bit in the middle Mm -hmm. where he's got this franchise. He's a well-liked person. He's he's a he's like so well beloved globally because of his role as Spider-Man and as Peter Parker. But at the same time, he's he's giving these performances and he's he's creating this catalogue where he's taking smaller roles, independent movies, he's taking on biopics, he's he's making choices like this that's gonna serve him well in the long run. And the fact that he's doing it at such a young age is incredibly exciting because I feel like Tom Holland can be one of those actors and can be one of those individuals that can survive beyond the franchise that he's currently involved with in Spider-Man. I agree. Uh, it's funny because going back, Tom Hanks, while they were promoting Catch Me If You Can with Leo, he basically said that Leo is the best actor of his generation back in like 2002. Wow. Which is very telling back then. Yeah. I feel like right now there's a few guys that are kind of battling for that position. I think like obviously Tom Holland, Timothy Chalamet, and a few others, but yeah. like... Those two feel like the front runners right now as like the up and coming best actors of their generation. Yeah. So whatever they do, I'm very interested in because it feels like we're going on a ride with them. Yeah. Uh, next, just as far as MCU goes, uh, Spider-Man No Way Home, which is coming out in basically a week and a half, uh, they're still working on that. Apparently, the final VFX shots are being finished this week. So uh, it just says a lot about. Like, I know, like, say, like, an artist like Kanye West, I always feel like I'm used as a fan to, like, hearing, oh, he's working on the album up until it comes out. I am not used to that with movies. I did not know that, number one. Number two, that 
is incredibly scary to hear. Alarming. Uh, and number three, I wonder if this is the, the shots of Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield that they're finally putting into the movie <laughs> in some sort of weird way. Imagine where... they're like, no, these guys aren't in the movie. What are you guys talking about? And at this point, they're pressured, <laughs> pressured, pressured into like actually yeah. putting them in. We just shot Maguire and Andrew Garfield over the weekend. They're in the movie. <laughs> uh, we also got like the uh, new Spider-Man movies for uh, the Spider-Verse movies, I should say. Uh, Chris Miller basically said they're working on part one and part two of Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. I couldn't be more excited about those movies. I love that first one. To me, that's the most exciting Spider-Man properties going forward. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Uh, like, I, th- I feel like Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is arguably one of the greatest comic book movies made, period, whether it's animation or live action. I've watched that, I think, three or four times now over the last couple of years. Uh, I'm excited about delving back into the world where Miles Morales is Mm -hmm. Spider-Man. And yeah, man, like, you know, Sony doesn't get a lot right when it comes to the, you know, IP that they have control of, but the animation department nailed it and has hit it right out of the park give me more of this the goat spider-man movie ever is the spider-verse movie and not only that but like it feels like they're getting miles morales like almost like they're getting fans used to the idea of miles morales as spider-man and by the time they finish up those three movies with tom holland i feel like they're going to transition into miles morales which i think is the right move going forward which would be great uh last two stories i got for the mcu is shang chi is finally getting a sequel that's in development with uh, the same director, Destin Daniel Cretton, returning. He's also developing a project for the MCU on Disney+. Plus. It's starting to feel like they're announcing like a new project every single week, it feels like. When is the last time we didn't say, like, oh, the MCU is coming out with a new Blade series, or this series, or that series? It's happening all the time. Yeah, I feel like this was almost inevitable. Uh, first of all, I'm not surprised that they're going forward with Shang-Chi Absolutely. 2 with the same uh, director. Absolutely not surprised whatsoever. The way Shang-Chi actually ends, where Shang-Chi's sister is essentially in control of uh, the Ten Rings uh, army, yeah. uh, it kind of feels like that's probably where they're going to almost delve into for this uh, Disney Plus streaming show. And that may even overlap with you know the next... Captain America and the Winter Soldier storyline. I kind of feel like those are inevitably going to like be on a crash course heading into each other in terms of sort of conflict there. I feel like, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to do with the universe building for the MCU and they're obviously doing it, but I do worry that they're introducing too many people too fast, like I mentioned before, and who knows if they're going to like jump the shark at some point because there's a lot coming out. I think the biggest um, telling of this whole situation will be when all of these new characters that have been slowly introduced to us, especially on the shows, that's make a, that jump onto the big screen. It's a loose term to say slowly because these guys are being introduced fast, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah, true. Absolutely. Um, when they make that jump onto the big screen, when we do get that nig, uh, you know, that big kind of like Avengers coming together-esque kind of movie... Does it resonate? Do audiences like these characters? Have they been emotionally invested? Have we given these characters enough time? Because again, we had the Captain America standalone movies, the Thor standalone movies, the Ant-Man standalone movies. And those were all one year, and then maybe like once a year, maybe twice a year. Yeah. Never like four movies coming out the same year, and then four different series are coming out that same year. And requiring a lot more of a commitment. We talked about six episodes, eight episodes. So there's a lot going on right now, and... I still give them the benefit of the doubt in terms of what they're capable of doing, but my goodness, are they asking a lot of their audiences, especially those that aren't perhaps the the hardcore Disney Plus 
MCU fans. I'm talking about the casuals that will just tune in, perhaps, to the big movies. Absolutely. Um, yeah, but let's get into our last segment of the show. Let's get regular weekly recommendation segment. Where, if you walked into Blockbuster and you just wanted to find a movie, you wanted uh, Tommy's pick or Randy's pick. What is Sandra's pick this week? Okay, so for me, this has been just an absolute iconic year for music documentaries. I talked about earlier this year how I love the Tina Turner documentary. I loved the Bee Gees documentary. And my goodness, are we ending 2021 with an, another banger. The Beatles, Get Back, docuseries on Disney+, Plus, directed by Peter Jackson. It's three episodes. Each episode is two plus hours long. For me, Peter Jackson with this docuseries has literally created a time machine. He has transported us back to, to 1969 and he's allowed us to be a fly on the wall and watch one of the greatest bands of all time create work through their creative process. For me, it's one of the best documentaries of the year. I cannot recommend this enough. Awesome. Yeah, I'm really excited to check that out. Um, for me, just similar to what we were talking about with Catch Me If You Can, I went with a movie that is similar in terms of concept but very different in terms of execution. Uh, the Talented Mr. Ripley, starring Matt Damon, Jude Law, Gwyneth Paltrow, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Kate Blanchett. Another con man movie, but very different. It's beautifully shot, massively impressive performances all around from such a young and diverse cast. A young cast. Um, and it's, it's, it's an interesting exploration into like luxury and like human exploration and, and it's early Matt Damon when he was like a really special talent right like this and like Goodwill Hunting and Rounders like he was just in a great space as a young actor if you enjoyed Catch Me If You Can but didn't think it was like sinister enough this one's gonna be more up your alley and it's also interesting that Matt Damon um, was involved in a movie like this where there's definitely elements of a con man involved. And then he also plays one himself in Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, that's everything for the show. Jump with, where can anybody find us this week? We are at Screen Off Script on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And for those of you that do listen to us on the Apple Podcast platform, do us a favor, rate and review us. Honestly, it takes 30 seconds of your time, but it really helps us, it helps the show, and it gets us to hopefully uh, in the hands of some new listeners. So if you could do that, that'd be much appreciated. Awesome. Thank you for checking us out this week, guys. Take care.